Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 49. My name's Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. We have a very special episode for you today as we sit down and talk with Lima Charlie founder and CEO, Maxime Lamont Brassard. I'm really excited about this interview today. On today's episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, I'm going to be interviewing my friend and business partner, the founder of Lima Charlie, Maxime Lamont Brassard. Thanks for being with us on the show today, Maxime. I'm really excited about this My one. pleasure. To get things started, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Sure. So I am uh, Maxime Lamont Brassard, and I am the co-founder of Lima Charlie. So I do lots of different things from the technical to the non-technical, talking to a bunch of customers, working with people, building amazing things. So lots of fun stuff. What was it that got you first interested in computers? That's that's a good question. And, and I think it's like it's a weird answer. And I'm, I'm right in that early, I think, generation where there's been a computer when like in, in my household, like where I grew up from the very beginning. So it's not like, you know, hey, one day somebody came in with a computer and discovered it. It just always been there. So it was always a thing that I was like really curious about that I kind of started, you know, playing as a kid, right? Like I think that's where a lot of people started just playing with computers and then over time being kind of always like interested more and more about like, you know, how does it work? And then eventually came in connectivity. So back in my early days for me, it was a Bolton board in Quebec, in Canada, where I'm from. And so that meant like dialing up to this, you know, to this literal office with like hundreds of modems. And then eventually the internet came. And so that, that's just been like a natural progression for Okay, so you wouldn't say there was anybody in particular that inspired you. It was just sort of this thing that was always around that you had a curiosity for. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I hung out with a lot of people that had a lot of interest in computers and, you know, built interesting things. And so it was just always omnipresent for me. And, you know, in fact, I would, I would kind of say that as, you know, as I got sort of, you know, late high school um, in a thing called Sejac, in, in in Quebec, which is like in between university and high school, it was just obvious for me that the direction I would be going in wasn't just, you know, higher level studies, but it was going to be something related to computers just because I'd always done it, always learned more. So yeah, just natural progression. Very cool. Yeah. I've heard those early days of the bulletin boards where there was a lot of community. It was sort of before it got too big, there was still this sense that you were part of something small and special. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it was pretty, it was pretty special. It, it, it's really, I think it was a micro community compared to what you have today on the internet, right? If you took one of those communities and then you, you, you put it there, but it was also very local. Because, well, I mean, for one, this was in French, Quebec. And so, you know, it kind of like makes sure that it's people local that are speaking French and it was lo localized in Quebec City. So it there wasn't just the, the concept of talking with people, but the concept of, of knowing those people and meeting those people like every month was just baked in. It's just how it was. Right. 
Oh, that's very cool. Kind of reminds me of the cybersecurity community and B-sides, the same kind of idea. That's right. right that's right. And yeah, that's, that's a good point. It's like those communities evolved that way. Yeah. And so uh, you finished high school and you went on to university. What did you study at university? Um, I studied in university. So I did uh, computer science, Bachelor of Computer Science with business option at the University of Victoria. So that was essentially the equivalent of doing computer science and then like a minor in business. So doing you know accounting and marketing and all kinds of like economy and all those those things all the fun stuff and a little known fact that maxime and myself met in a fourth year compiler construction class that i think it's almost 16 years ago now which is (laughs) a little hard to swallow but uh time marches on right that's right that's right and then after university you were recruited by a certain three-letter agency in canada can you tell us about that a little sure so, yes. So I was recruited. So my degree was a co-op degree, which meant that I would do essentially internships there. And so I applied to go work for them for internships. I ended up doing two or three different internships with them. It's called CSE in Canada. It's essentially the NSA for Canada. And so I did those internships. The last one I got an offer uh, conditional on me graduating. So I had a lot of motivation to just get it done. And uh, yeah, I I went straight out of the university, uh, you know, the next semester, like a week later kind of thing. I went, uh, started working there. It was, it was really an amazing experience. You know, I think I'd been a lot in computer science until the so doing you know development all the things like in a, a comp sci degree but going to CSE I was able to get into security which uh, particularly I think back then was a very um oh god like um uh, uh obscure topic but you know there wasn't a lot of people doing security there wasn't as much of a as big of an industry around security especially around very uh, mature or, you know, like very in-depth security, right? So back then, yeah, you had antivirus and that type of stuff, but that's where the bulk of the industry really was. So going into an organization that uh, that really cared about security and that invested a lot and the people that were hired there were just amazing. So I got to, I got to sort of, entered the 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 work uh the workforce right away in a really really in-depth professional amazing team so that that kind of weirdly set the bar for me because it meant that i i never really went through uh you know a fairly kind of um how to say that like you know, like I, I apologize for anybody working at like, I don't know, the Ministry of Agriculture, right? Like, but working at a place where like security is a thing, it's on the side and you have to fight tooth and nail for every little thing. Like I never went through that at the time. So it was, it was really cool to just go right into it, build amazing things. The, the approach in the government and the type of group I was in was also very cutting edge by design 
which meant that again, I didn't start at a place where like, Hey, here's a, you know, here's a cookbook and everything's just done for you. You just got to follow a recipe. It was the exact opposite. So I joined a place where the, the goal were extremely open, uh, open-ended and you really had a lot of imagination going through it. So I, I did something like seven or eight years, I think at CSE doing a bunch of different things. Yeah. Amazing experience. Yeah. And cost wasn't a factor in the work that you were doing. It was more about achieving the goals and solving the problems, which is not something you generally face in the, uh, capitalist driven market. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's very true. You know, it's not that there's no, that there's no forcing function, right? It's that, that function is very different because you're in the government. There's overarching goals that tend to be a lot more altruistic, right? You know, and as cliche as it sounds, right, it's like defending, you know, the national defense kind of thing. So it meant that, you know, yes, costs did come into it every now and then, but I think especially back then in security, the the limitations were not around money, especially where we work, because it wasn't a case of like, hey, we need to buy this tool that's very, very expensive. And without buying this tool, we can't do anything. It was the exact opposite, right? It was, hey, we need to achieve this thing. There's no tool on the planet that does this. Like nobody has to ever like deal with this. So the only way to go and do it is, is by having people, you know, work with their brain and do things that have never been done before. So that was super cool. Very cool. And Eventually, you left the government, ended up in the private sector, and you were a pretty early employee at CrowdStrike. What did you do while you were there? That's correct. So I was something like employee 100-ish uh, at CrowdStrike. Um, so this was pre-product or or pre-real you know like real product as we know it today. So I helped architect the early security operation center at CrowdStrike. So Early on, it was really mostly, you know, a, a team, what today, you know, you would call an MSSB, right? But just like people doing security, kind of supporting what eventually someday would become the product, but really just by having, you know, smart people doing the thing. So we kind of stood up a bunch of different systems, some to use some monitoring, some to help support the uh, the threat intelligence arm of CrowdStrike. So just a lot of the the early things that had to be done building a big company like that. Yeah. And then after CrowdStrike, you ended up at Google on their main campus, which led to a stint at Google X, which landed you on the founding team of what would become Chronicle Security. How did that experience measure up to what you'd been through so far? I, You know, I, I feel like every different, jump experience that I went through uh, was very unique and very valuable, like in its own right. So, you know, government has a lot of unique stuff. Early CrowdStrike, again, right? A private sector company, high tech at the time, 100% distributed. So again, a very different experience. Going into Google internal security was another really interesting experience in that it was sort of a mix between government, right? Because Google is huge, right? So there's a certain quality that's government-like, I would say, both in terms of size and in terms of 
of mission. So obviously it's not national defense, but there, there was absolutely a pretty strong conviction from Google and from internal security, you know, around protecting, uh, protecting Google, but really helping the internet as well as weird as it sounds. Google's one of those companies where at the scale that they're at, you know, helping to make the it's internet in their safe. Best interest. Yeah, it's a big thing. So, yeah. So, so, so that was, that was really interesting. And, and Google X was also really interesting in that while I was at Google internal, I, I heard about this team that was getting started inside of Google X. I didn't know a whole lot about X at the time. And really all I kind of heard was, Hey, there's a team part of X that's getting ready to do what, what they call the moonshot. So meaning we're going to do something. We're going to try to do something with a crazy huge impact. Right. And we're going to uh, test it. Meaning like we're going to try to go for it. And then X part of the DNA of X is, Hey, it worked. Then it's going to spin out as a toy company or it didn't work. Okay. We're just going to kill the project. And then you know, people go back to to different types of uh, of other teams. So insecurity. So we'll jump insecurity. So this concept, I've you know, my my whole career, I've always been pushing like I hate how cliche it sounds, but like pushing the envelope in terms of doing things that had had not been done before, or doing weird things that you know potentially could have a big impact. So this idea of Hey, you're kind of going to be part of Google for a while, but you're going to be given an objective, which is have a big impact on security. And you're going to be part of a team that, you know, that's what you're trying to do. Like the idea was very romantic and very interesting. So joined that team. Well, you know, went to talk to, to, uh, the, the, the people starting that team. And, uh, right away it was, it was really clear that this was the fit for me. So we spent a good year and a half or two years, uh, you know, probably year, year and a half ideating, meaning investigating various types of projects that we could be doing, talking to people in the industry, getting feedback on some of those ideas. And then, yeah, eventually, you know, the, the, the thesis settled and, we started growing up the team, spun up as a Chronicle Security, and, and now that's that's history. It got uh, you know got bought back by Google Cloud. I think about six months later, kind of thing. So a uh, very you know fascinating, unique experience, and 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 honestly, the neck it was the next logical step for me. And it was also a logical stepping stone to going and starting something. So it was, yeah, it was a good fit. Very cool. Yeah. And that leads me to uh, sometime in around 2016, I think you decided to start an open source project. What did you build and what drove you to do it? Yeah. So in, uh, while I was at Google internal security, that's when it started, I built and open source a an EDR. So what at the time was an EDR, it was called Lila Charlie. So it's kind of the the very first, you know, instance of of us using that name. At the time it was an EDR only. The idea was that, you know, 
Google security was an amazing team with a lot of people that really knew what they were doing, like really, really capable people. And we had at one point a survey of various EDR products at the time, like, hey, you know, if Google wants to use an EDR change, you know, some of this technology, what would that be? And so we talked to a bunch of different vendors and that, you know, that type of timeline was right around the time where if you looked at the, the evolution of EDR in security, uh, back when I was at CrowdStrike, like around that timeline was, I would say the, the, the crest of the, the APT craze, meaning advanced persistent threat was the sexy term. Everybody was on there. It was, you know, China's hacking people like super, super like advanced. And from there, the industry really started sliding down in terms of complexity, especially in the EDR space to, you know, what nowadays people call uh, like next gen EDR or next gen endpoint, whatever you want. But what it really meant was that the EDR tool transformed from this specialized tool for professionals to do really, you know, good investigation, thorough, flexible. And it became mostly an antivirus, meaning here's a tool, you deploy it, it kind of does everything for you. You know, here's a blinking red light. If it blinks, you've been hacked. And, you know, it's understandable because there was, there's a lack of, uh, like, there's a high demand for cybersecurity professionals. And so the industry kind of reacted to that by saying, okay, we're going to make everything as simple as we can. That's fine. But if you're Google and you're looking around EDR, you know, for, for EDR technologies, you're not looking for the blinking red light, right? Well, you're looking for the, for the pro tool because professionals existed and there's more and more of them in the industry. So looked at all these different vendors, played with it. And I was really frustrated because it was all very simplified. You know, you kind of had to, uh, you know, beg the vendor to get access to the thing that you know should be super easy to get. But that vendor decided that it's too complex for, you know, 99% of the customers so they don't make it accessible or you know, things like that. So I decided to, uh, in my in my silly self, just, I said like, you know what, screw this, I'm going to build it and I'm going to put it open source. And if people want to use it, then they can do that. So it's a long story to say that was kind of like my my reaction to this of like, hey, I know this is possible. Let's just let's just do this and, and make it available. It it allowed me to script uh, to uh, scratch that itch around developing low level uh, you know agents and EDRs and you know, a little bit of forensics, all that kind of stuff. So I did that, open sourced it. Fascinating learning. Because, uh, you know, I, I think like the number one learning in my mind from, from those times is because something is free doesn't mean people will use it. And so, you know, it, it got like some decent traction. But the reality, I think, of open source is that if you truly want it to spread, you have to put a, as much effort as you would at a normal company in terms of marketing, in my mind. So. So yeah, so it gained kind of a, a you know a, a niche background there. That's my long story here. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, and I still talk to people today that followed it from back then. You had so you had a small but very loyal following for the product, and I think a lot of people could could see the potential of it, even though it was sort of you know buried in the noise of all the other open source stuff. Like you were saying, without marketing, it's really hard to to break through. So we've always stayed in touch over the years, and then uh, in 2018, I got a call from you out of the blue. You told me it was time and that you were starting a company, which was something we always talked about doing back in university. So you decided to close the source of Lima Charlie and commercialize the product. What was behind that decision? So, so yeah, that, that's a really good question. There's many things behind it. So uh, actually, uh, you know, the main, the main thing really goes back directly to, to, you know, what I was just mentioning around, you know, marketing and like, you need to really be involved and, Having an open source project means that you have to support it and you have to support it in ways that you're not always intending yourself, right? So if you put an EDR up there, there's going to be people that wants to go and run it and, you know, make it talk directly to Syslog, right? Or to, you know, some other product or do things that, are kind of peripheral. And so it ends up being a really big side quest where we had a very specific vision of where we wanted to kind of go with this, but the, 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 the side quest or the, the squirrel uh, of this, which was always like, oh, well, you know, these people are talking about adopting the open source version and they're trying to do something totally different than what we're trying to do. But, you know, maybe they're potentially big users. So, you know, I guess we're going to put some effort in that direction. So it's just a lot of, of those, uh, those squirrels, right? Like distractions from what you're trying to do. So that was the biggest, like the biggest part of that decision. We wanted to be able to, to really focus on the part of this that we knew could have a huge impact in the future without having to also, you know, like work with a lot of legacy stuff. We wanted to really go in one direction and go hard. Yeah. So the initial idea was to make an EDR that gave security professionals ungated access to all the capabilities and create an API first platform that people could use to solve their security problems in the way they saw fit. Again, as mature security professionals, that's about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, um, I, I think our history is one of having a vision and realizing that we're that we were not there yet and adjusting how we would talk about it. So pretty early on, we had this kind of this bigger direction of of the the SecOps you know cloud platform, like a, a, a bigger overarching type of solution, but. We were a brand new company. We had an EDR in our back pocket. We had to go and and put something in the market and get feedback and slowly build it. And the industry wasn't at a point where, you know, we were too early uh, philosophically for us to go and really talk about that that big vision right away. So we kind of looked and said, okay, what's the you know, what's the, what's the half step here that we can use to describe? It's not really the thing in the long term that we will be, 
but it's going in that same direction. People can understand it better. There is some, you know, some users that are ready to use it, to give us feedback, to build with us. And that's where it ended up being, okay, we've got this EDR. APIs are really, really critical for us. The way that we, that we build toward this big vision, it's also critical for us to have this emphasis on you know, self-serve and scalability up and down, all these things. So describing it as, hey, here's an EDR and it's API first. I think I think in the early days we even talked a little bit about like middleware EDR kind of thing. And that's really where it started. So we, you know, we put EDR as our first product, got early users of it. It wasn't for everyone. And so we got the the early users that really made it possible for us to iterate super quickly on the product and have a really, really great fit for, for the people for whom it was a fit. So that's kind of we, how we bootstrapped it here. There was a larger epiphany. Do you want to describe what that realization was? You know, we had this API first EDR platform. We knew we wanted scale. We wanted all these things. And then we realized it kind of looked like something and that security was maybe going in a certain direction. Right? That's right. That's right. It, it was, um, it was in my mind, it was the intersection of, of us figuring out how to talk about or, or how to describe a thing that we'd seen, you know, the, the direction from in a way that people can understand and and in a way that the market is kind of catching up to. And that's sort of where the, you know, what we now talk about, uh, the SecOps cloud platform really kind of came in. So it was this idea that, you know, to, to use a, a well-known kind of piece of history, right? AWS starting EC2 being kind of everything on day one, right? Like, there was a time where AWS really looked like a, a virtual machine thing in the cloud. And so there was this strong parallel to us saying, you know, yeah, we look like an EDR in the cloud API first and self-serve and, you know, you can integrate with it. But if you connect the dots, that's when you end up with the SecOps cloud platform, meaning this idea that the, the IT industry, you know, 15 years ago went through this transformation from people would just buy the box software from different vendors, from a ton of different vendors. Everything was kind of, you know, novel and secret sauce. And AWS eventually came in around the same time that a lot of uh, sophistication appeared in the industry where people started to go like, hey, you know, I, I know what a load balancer is. I know what a web server is. I know what a VM is. And, and so AWS really kind of came in and said like, okay, we're going to give you incredibly easy access to those things. It will be publicly documented, uh, publicly accessible. It'll be OEMs if you want to build using it, right? It was this drastic different way of, of looking at it. And then the products on top of that platform were uh, the, what they called the primitives, meaning uh, it wasn't the box software because you know, people have been putting a bunch of box software together and calling it a product for a really, really long time. But if you've ever used AWS, you know that those are not the same thing. And so, so you had an AWS, right? You had like EC2 and DynamoDB and like all of these cool things that they built for people to 
to use those generic tools and plug them together and do really cool stuff. And so the idea was we could see that cybersecurity was maturing a lot, right? We talk about EDR. There was a time where EDR was like super secret sauce. But nowadays, people get what EDR is. And, and there's a bunch of these types of solutions that are becoming really well understood, yet you're still stuck going to talk to you know, one of vendors for their product, and uh, you can't get access to any documentation ahead of time, right? Those are each individual walled gardens, big process around buying it, around integrating it. And so it, the aha moment was why... Why is that, right? If it, it, like IT got this really, really amazing tool, why is security still stuck in the old, you know, hey, I'm going to buy, you know, 50 different box software and, and five other ones to try to glue it together. There needs to be a cloud. There just needs to be a cloud for SecOps primitives, meaning generic, you know, generic versions of the tools so that People can assemble them together and build cool things and assemble the security posture that they need. They're not stuck. You know, when something happens, they're not stuck calling, you know, 20 different vendors to see if they're protected against X or Y. They can just have access and be able to to control their own destiny. There's a lot of smart people in cybersecurity across the whole industry. Why do you think they haven't why do you think nobody's picked up on this approach so far? Why is it still, you know, niche solutions, walled gardens, vendor lock-in? Why does that stuff still exist? Yeah, there's multiple components to that. I mean, historically, right, the, 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 the very first part is, look, historically, security was very difficult to get into, very difficult to understand, very protected, uh, you know, I kind of always joke like the, the the two guys in hoodies in the basement that nobody really knows what they're doing. And so I think it, the industry has been shaped the way that it has been because of this, the difficulty for enterprise that needed security, you know, uh, solutions, but didn't have, you know, that knowledge or those people in there. So So the industry had to bridge that gap. However, that and that's kind of our thesis, right? Is that this is changing. We're not saying everybody's an expert, just like we're not saying everybody should use AWS, right? If you're uh, a, a auto part store, you know, in town, you probably don't want to build your website on AWS directly. Um, you're going to go and use, you know, Squarespace or something like that, and then they're going to use AWS. So we saw the same kind of maturity model being created. And so I think at this stage, there's the combination of we're in a transition, right? Somebody's got to be the first and it's a transition for people to get accustomed to it. But what it also means is that people are not accustomed to it, right? They're, the idea that this is even possible doesn't come naturally to everybody. So I think there's a big part of this which is just us talking very publicly about how we think the future of security looks like. And again, not for everybody, right? We're not saying like everybody's the same, uh, but we're saying that, you know, realistically, if we connect the dots in the future, is the future going to look like a couple of vendors selling a couple of black boxes 
that work best for everybody on earth at the same time. It's the same product. Everybody's magically, you know, protected from breaches. Or is it going to turn out that, you know, some things are really difficult, that there's more and more attack surface in security, more and more complex systems, organizations look different. And that the reality is we need professional tools for a, an industry of cybersecurity professionals to do a great job. And that's kind of how we think about it. And that's, that's why I think it's a transition. Mm-hmm. And we've been building towards this for a little over five years. Where is Lima Charlie on this journey and where are we going? You know, I, I think we're at a really exciting point because if you'd asked me two years ago, we were still at a point where we would talk behind closed doors about what it is that we're building. You know, we mostly had our EC2 read the EDR, and so we really looked a lot like an EDR. And it was diff- it was more difficult to kind of, you know, put the whole picture together. Now, I would say in the last year, it's really become a lot easier for people to connect the dots. And we're seeing that with the people that we work with that uh, that start using our product in that whereas most people used to come to us looking for an EDR and that was the, the one and only thing, nowadays we really work with people that do security at larger scale. So whether that's enterprise or, or MSSPs, a lot of managed security service providers. and we truly are becoming, you know, the, the SecOps cloud provider for those people, right? Not that we're like, to clarify, we're not building our own cloud, right? Where we're re-implementing virtual machines. We're really talking about having the, 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 the core generics that are needed for anybody doing SecOps anywhere. So whether, yes, that's EDR or that is you know, connecting to other cloud platforms, uh, getting you know audit logs from different places, doing alerting, doing uh, data optimization to other platforms, right? A lot of reducing costs and stuff like that. So, I think today we look quite different, and we we now have a very credible story in front of us. So, for us to start talking very publicly about what we're doing, I think it's time. I think it's time for us to go from, you know, one-to-one conversations where people just light up at the end of the conversation and say like, you know what, let's not, let's not hide this big vision that we have. I think the industry is ready and we're just going for it. Yeah, I agree. And I think if you look at the history of IT and the way that industry matured is, is more professionals, uh, you know, grew their careers and we had this more specialization, like. I just don't see why you would do it any other way. So I'm very excited to be a part of what we're doing. Here. That's right. That's right. And, you know, again, we're, we're, we're talking about, about the, the maturity of the industry and logically I totally agree about like, no, not doing it any other way, but the industry is going to change a lot, too, right? So I think there's kind of a lot of, uh, of discussions that we're enabling around this idea of what's the space, what, what's the place of MSSPs in the industry, right? Do we do we believe that every organization independently needs to do their own security? Where's those boundaries? Where do we want to invest as an industry? Huh. Fascinating stuff. 
All right. Well, this is the one I have to ask you because I ask it of everybody on the show. <laughs> it can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future? Uh, that's a good question. Um, yes, I I would say my two I mean, predictions. Yeah. Prediction makes it sound like I actually know what's going to happen, and and that, that that's not true. Uh, but I think there's two very large movements that are going to be happening over the next uh, several years in security. One is in terms of platform or ecosystem security, and what I mean by this is the the fundamental raising of the bar of security through all of the the core platforms that people use, right? iOS is like the, the best canary in the coal mine here in that it's a extremely safe by default, right? It, it baked into the DNA to the fundamentals. And there's things like Chrome OS that are doing very similar things. Microsoft is getting a lot better, right? So I think there's a lot of that movement that's going to raise that floor to make everybody a lot safer inherently. The second one is I think there's going to be a a movement of who's doing security where in in IT. And what I mean by that is very large companies will be able to, you know, afford and do their own security and have their own security team. Um they'll have, you know, large environments they want to invest in like that that kind of dynamic. And then there's going to be a lot of much smaller shops that won't be able to afford that. But Everybody needs security. It, everything uses like tech these days, right? So it's not like, oh, if you're not a tech company, you don't need it. Everybody fundamentally needs it. And so I think there's going to be a big movement of consolidation around who does security around large enterprise and MSSPs that really specialize, right? That's their business to go and perform security for a lot of smaller folks. So we're at a we're at a spot right now where we like to think that you know you just buy this product and now you're safe. But I think over time, you know that's that's just not going to cut it anymore. We're going to end up with MSSPs that are a lot more advanced and powerful and able to scale their operations. That's exactly. Awesome. Well, Max, this was a fun one. I always enjoy talking to. You. It's an honor to get to work with you as well. So thanks for being on same the show. Here, same here. Thanks. And that concludes episode number 49 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.